Ah, oh, you division. I think that's right. Okay. Chorus again. Oh, you division, you 26 division. Boys from New England states. <laughs> well, it's right in the popular song tradition. You could almost write it yourself. And I can imagine for me um, the song coming out being shown in the window of his printing shop. And I also see, you know, around the piano people singing this to build up their, their strength and courage for the, the, the conflict. Linda Radke is a singer and researcher. Some of her repertoire comes from sheet music housed in the Vermont Historical Society, like this song. I've got a interesting decorative cover on a piece of sheet music. It's orange and blue, and it has the title on it, OU 26th Division. OU Division, U 26th Division. And there's a column of troops marching toward me, led by a soldier on a white horse. We're looking at these pages with Paul Carnahan and Amanda Gustin from the Historical Society. Up in the left-hand corner is a uh, man in uniform embracing a young woman, kissing a young woman, actually, as the, uh, the troops are marching away. Below the illustration of the troops, it says, Words and Music are by Fritz Buchner, and it's published by the author, Fritz Buchner, at 46 Pearl Street, Burlington, Vermont. Fritz, our friend Fitz, kind of an interesting guy. Uh, he was actually born uh, in Burlington, Vermont. His parents were German immigrants. He and all of his siblings, and he had a whole pile of siblings, were all born in Burlington. It strikes me as really interesting that a first-generation German immigrant in Burlington, Vermont, would be going all in like this on the American war effort. But on the other hand, he was probably felt a need to, uh, to prove his Americanism yes. and that he supported the, the American cause and not the cause of his, uh, his parents' homeland. For liberty, freedom, and the red, white, and blue, they said they showed the Huns what America could do. Though they did not prepare, they certainly did their share, those boys from New England states. The lyrics talk about soldiers going off to war to fight the Huns. Yeah, I felt so uncomfortable about singing this because whenever we have a war, we find names for our enemy, and that was one of them. You know, and again, the barbaric Hun, and this, this was the, the culture of Beethoven and Bach and Brahms, and at the time, musicologists and, and music critics were arguing about whether indeed we should even be preparing German music, whether we should just reject everything that came from Germany because of the Kaiser. They went in for victory, like all our soldiers do. They showed the Hun their colors, the red, white, and blue. They protected their country, yes, even me and you, those boys from New England states. In the song, Fritz isn't just talking about Americans. He's talking about New Englanders. So the 26th Division was one of the earliest divisions created after America entered World War I. And basically what they did was they collected uh, a number of New England-based National Guard regiments and put them together uh, in this division. 
pretty early on, it gained the nickname uh, Yankee Division or the Yankee Division. At the country's call, into line they'd fall. Almost immediately, people were writing songs about the 26th Division or the Yankee Division as the Yankee Division, the 26th Division. So Fritz is by no means alone uh, in this. There are a lot of songs written out of Boston, also celebrating these, these boys from New England states, which is Fritz's line in this song. Although there were a lot of Vermonters in the 26th Division, and that was the most likely place for a Vermonter to end up, uh, who fought in World War I, it was by no means the only place. Um, there were Vermonters fighting in other divisions and other regiments throughout. In the Civil War, soldiers had been grouped together based on where they were from. So there were entire regiments filled with Vermonters. That changed in World War I. The, uh, the federal government got rid of that for World War I because of the obvious consequences and the effects on uh, towns when uh, there were some of these horrific battles. Um, but now that, uh, that pride has been transferred to New England as a region, and uh, Fritz writes about Yankee Division, you're the cream of the USA. Now the folks at home have all noticed that was you that put the feather in your Uncle Sammy's hat. Oh, you Yankee division, you 26 division, you're the cream of the USA. (laughs) This meant that Vermonters who went off to fight in Europe went off at different times from their neighbors and came home at different times, if they came home at all. The Vermonters who fought all had unique experiences overseas, and that was even more obvious when they brought those experiences back to their home state. This is Before Your Time, presented by the Vermont Historical Society, the Vermont Humanities Council, and VT Digger. I'm your host, Lovejoy. Every episode, we go inside the stacks at the Vermont Historical Society to look at an object from their permanent collection that tells us something unique about our state. Then we take a closer look at the people, the events, or the ideas that surround each artifact. The Yankee division that Linda was singing about arrived in France in September of 1917. By the following summer, two million Americans were fighting there. So the storyline of these young Americans going overseas to help fight a war that really isn't, hasn't impacted them on the American front kind of caught me. And you know, these, these boys are 17, 18 years old. You look at photographs of them and you can hardly believe that they know how to you know, tie their shoes, let alone ship overseas and uh, fight a, you know, an enemy who they may have never met before. Brennan Gothier is an archaeologist with the Vermont Agency of Transportation. He also collects portraits of World War I soldiers. For me, it's, it's incredible to hold a portrait. They're all print, most of them are all printed on postcards. So they were actually physically handed to these soldiers at the, at the photo studios when they were overseas. And these guys had to send them home. So every photograph I have in my collection that's a photo postcard was physically handled by this man or woman in France or Germany, and then it somehow made its way from Germany or France to the United States. It just you know, gives you a sense of, you're like, almost like you're touching history. It's a you know, tactile thing. Brennan is showing us a photo of John Aubrey Gordon, who was born in Barrie in 1888. 
Gordon was a Dartmouth student when he signed up with the American Field Service. The American Field Service was kind of a precursor to the American Red Cross. He was only one of 21 Vermonters to actually uh, volunteer for the American Field Service during the war, which is actually a very low number. Uh, many other states had hundreds and maybe even thousands of people that signed up. Um, and once you were overseas, you were um, charged with driving an ambulance, and those ambulances were donated by cities and towns across the United States, or even fraternal organizations. Driving an ambulance at the front lines was a harrowing experience. You know, today we think of ambulances as, you know, really sturdy and, you know, able to traverse, you know, long distances. But these ambulances are kind of rickety. Uh, the cots would be loaded into the back, uh, kind of on shelves. So if you were wounded, you would be almost like a bunk system. There'd be three or four, <laughs> you know, men above you, possibly bleeding or screaming and things like that. So it was not a great experience for those men. Gordon's most intense experience under fire took place soon after he arrived. John arrived overseas in early 1918, and his first and most famous kind of encounter where he won a number of medals was in Italy. A lot of people don't think of Italy as being one of the fronts during World War I, but it was. So he served with the American Field Service with an Italian unit, and he was charged with um, bringing wounded back from the front lines at this one famous battle the Battle of the Piave River, which was the last Austrian offensive of the Italian front. He was awarded the Italian War Cross for meritorious service by the Italian government, and a newspaper in Barrie ran an article about his heroism. I have uh, right here. This was in a Barrie newspaper. <clears throat> J.A. Gordon decorated for bravery. More detailed information as to the occasion which resulted in John Gordon of Barrie being decorated for bravery in Italy has been received. It appears that around 3 o'clock the morning of June 15th, a reinforcement of ambulances was needed, and four volunteers were called for. One of them was John. The advancement under a violent bombardment of many shells and tear gas bombs, they continued to carry wounded to the rear throughout the day and into the night during the entire offensive. Gordon returned home in early 1919. So he came home, finished at Dartmouth. So he graduated uh, class of 1921 and studied law at University of Chicago as well as the Chicago-Kent College of Law. He was a class of 1923. Um, and then he moved back to Barrie to practice here in town. Gordon became well-known as a passionate socialist and a lawyer who often took on pro bono cases if he felt the defendants had been treated unfairly. He was a huge supporter of unions and defended Italian marble workers who went on strike. He eventually became mayor of Barrie, and some of his biggest accomplishments were in infrastructure he built the Barrie Municipal Auditorium, which still hosts conventions and basketball tournaments today. He also added baseball fields and tennis courts that were publicly available to anyone in town, and he helped create the Barrie Montpelier Airport. Uh, he also extended water lines throughout Barrie to allow people to access the public water supply, and he increased the police force and added a new 600-gallon fire engine to the town. So he was quite influential. Not all of those who went overseas during World War I were young men. Amanda Gustin from the Historical Society told us about one woman's work during the war. Anne Squire was born in 1887 in Wethersfield, Vermont. Her father was a farmer, and she was the oldest of three kids. Her father died when she was 11. We don't know much else about her childhood, but it can't have been easy. But somehow, even in spite of that, she ends up going to art school. 
Anne went to art school in Massachusetts. When she returned to Vermont, she took a job as the art director for the Springfield School System. She worked there until 1918, when she took a new job with the medical department of the U.S. Army as a reconstruction aide. Which is kind of odd phrasing. <laughs> it's kind of an odd thing that for the modern ear, but this was essentially a um, group of women, and it was women, who were working as physical therapists or occupational therapists. And this was the first time that the United States Army tried to integrate physical therapy into its uh, medical corps. And now we think of if you get injured, of course you're going to end up in physical therapy afterwards to sort of help you cope with the injury, to help you work through an injury, or just to help you learn how to sort of adjust to life, perhaps missing a limb or with limited mobility. That was a totally new idea at the time. Something to think about when you think about World War I is that people often call it the first modern war. It was an almost unbelievably destructive war, not just to the landscape, but also to human life. But at the same time, we'd made some pretty big jumps in medical science. So at the same time people were getting injured at a far greater rate, we were also saving lives at a far greater rate. And what that means is that your casualty rate is still incredibly high, but you get a lot of these soldiers with injuries they would not have survived, say, in the Civil War. So what you end up with is a lot of soldiers who have pretty severe injuries, but are going to be okay. Anne's background was in art, not medicine, but it was common for untrained women to take on these jobs. They were women who maybe they had some medical or nursing background, but the work they were doing was so new that it wasn't like they just went out and they recruited a whole bunch of existing physical therapists and massage therapists and occupational therapists. Those, those professions just did not really exist yet. In fact, some associations of physical therapy trace the beginnings of physical therapy sort of as a medical discipline, as a standalone medical discipline to this moment, to World War I. So even if she had a basic medical background, she would have been trained on the job. Most women were trained on the job. Many reconstructive aides were recruited toward the end of the war, and Anne's transport ship actually departed the United States on November 12, 1918, the day after the armistice was signed. And she actually doesn't spend too long over there, which is partially by design, right? This is not a five-year stint. Uh, the hope is really to transition these soldiers over to get a large number of people to help the U.S. soldiers come back home. Uh, so she ends up coming home uh, the following August, August 1919. After she came home, Anne returned to her career as an artist. She moved to the Midwest, then came back to Vermont years later. She ends up coming back east in 1934 and works in the Burlington school system as an art teacher. And she actually ends up teaching night classes under the Works Progress Administration in uh, jewelry making and metalworking. So she's teaching art to school kids during the day, and then she's teaching art to adults during the evening as part of that incredible flourishing of a federal works project. In 1936, Anne became a professor of arts and crafts at Goddard College in Plainfield a job she held for the rest of her life. Her art is really local, and it's almost small, by which I don't mean it's, it's small-minded. I mean it's, it's really focused on place, and it's really focused on local place. Uh, she returned to the theme of Spruce Mountain, 
over and over again in her art, which is a mountain in Plainfield. It was the view that she could see out of her own window, and she just never got tired of that. Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. You may have heard this poem before, In Flanders Fields, by the Canadian poet John McRae. This poem about World War I made McRae famous, but in Vermont, he was already well-known. I kind of define him as like three aspects of his life. He was a soldier, he was a physician, and he was also a poet. McCrae played a key role in the early years of the University of Vermont's medical school. We talked to Kate Bright and Sarah Dopp from the UVM Medical Library about McCrae's time in Burlington. He actually started coming to Burlington. He was a visiting professor. So he would basically come down every other Wednesday. You know, he would take the train down and he would work on his lectures on the way down and prepare for the day of teaching. When McRae started um, teaching there in 1904, the medical school at UVM was small, with maybe 100 students. On top of that, its main building burned down in 1903. So for the first few years that McRae taught, he had to use classrooms all over Burlington. McRae was very accommodating. He was very, like, an integral part of, like, making things work, it seemed like, in the spaces that they had. And he just kind of came in and did the work that he needed to do and um, helped them kind of get their feet under them. By all accounts, McRae was talented and the community recognized it. In 1904, he gave the opening address for the medical school. It was titled The Privileges of Medicine, and it talked about medicine being a sacred calling and that it is a physician's duty to serve those who are in need. That was kind of his, the crux of where he was coming from with his medicine. That's something that he really believed in. You know, we're, we're serving our community we're not here, you know, for our own benefit. We're here to serve those who need us, basically. At this same time, McRae was writing a book. It's called The Textbook of Pathology for Students of Medicine. That's published in 1912 and would be used at the medical school at UVM um, until the 1920s mm-hmm. as one of their textbooks. And we happen to have a copy right yep. here <laughs> next to us. It's a big, thick book. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the short version. The, the <laughs> Just before the book was published, McCrae ended his teaching career at UVM. His last year teaching was 1911. The war began just a few years later. He was on a ship on his way to Europe on holiday when World War I broke out. When he hears this, you know, he has this sense of duty to his country and to all people that he needs to go back to being a soldier. McRae became a surgeon with an artillery brigade. He served right on the front lines, and in between the horrors of war, he continued a practice that he had pursued his whole life. 
They talk about how he used poetry as a way of just using up those spare moments that he would have between things. Like he felt like he needed to be doing something and that's what poetry did for him. The theme in a lot of his poems is death and loss. And I think people kind of latch onto that as something that speaks about him himself. But from what people have seen, it seems like he was very enthusiastic about life and he wasn't like this gloomy person that talked about death all the time. Today, John McRae is remembered more than anything for that one particular poem he wrote in May 1915, soon after the Battle of Ypres. In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing, fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. In the poem, McCrae uses the image of the poppy to remind people of the sacrifices that soldiers make. This business of the poppy, I think, is a really important part of the story because he didn't intentionally go about setting up an icon to remember World War I, but that's exactly what he did. And so people glommed on to this idea of the poppy. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, but it's blood red, and it reminds us of the horrors of war. In Flanders Fields, almost instantly became famous. People at the time, they, they felt a kinship to him just through his work. They felt that in Flanders Field, it kind of spoke to, you know, the duty that the soldiers still had to perform. It spoke to the people at home um, supporting those soldiers. This poem ends up being like this symbolic lift of here we have to continue, you know. This is us continuing on even with everything that's happened. McCrae didn't live to see the end of the war. In January 1918, he contracted pneumonia and died after just five days. Today, we still use the image of the poppy, especially on Veterans Day, to remember soldiers who lose their lives in wartime. Veterans organizations such as the American Legion sell small paper poppies as fundraisers. It becomes quite an emblem of the waste of war because here's somebody with so much potential, so much he'd already given in so many different fields. You know, it's pointless to have have the kind of conversation of, you know, what if he hadn't been killed, but the fact remains he was only 46. He could have had 40 more years of productive output and humanitarian service, and that was cut off. In the end, over 16,000 Vermonters served in the war. And like the Canadian poet John McRae, more than 600 of them died overseas. 
Almost 800 more were wounded in action, but thousands of others, like John Aubrey Gordon from Barrie and Anne Squire from Wethersfield, served their country and came back to live their lives in their homeland of Vermont. is presented by the Vermont Historical Society, the Vermont Humanities Council, and VT Digger. This episode was produced by Amanda Gustin and Mike Dougherty. Thanks to Linda Radke, Paul Carnahan, Brennan Gothier, Kate Bright, and Sarah Dopp. Before Your Time comes out every month, search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend to check it out. You can find photos and artifacts related to this episode on our website, beforeyourtime.org. Thanks for listening.